The long and short of it is CO2 contributes a very small amount of the warming that we're seeing. The warming we're seeing is well within the natural range of the last 10,000 years, 100,000 years, whatever time period you want to go back. And it, most recently, it's been warming since 17, 1800, since the end of what was called the Little Ice Age. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. On today's show, we're talking about our planet's environment, among other things. Our guest today is Jerry Levine, who was a chemical engineer at Amico for over 30 years. Over time, Jerry has become a student of global warming. He shared some of his contrarian views on the topic in this interview. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce Jerry Levine, who is my very good friend and one of the brightest people I know and one of the nicest people I know. It also shows Lloyd must have no friends. (laughs) 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 Lloyd and I have been great friends, tennis buddies, uh, golf buddies for 40 years probably. Well, today, Jerry, I'd like to talk a little bit about your career and I'd lo- like to talk about what's going on today in the world. Jerry, tell us a little bit about uh, growing up uh, in Chicago and then ultimately ending up at Purdue and how you ended up uh, as an engineer. Okay, that's fun. Growing up in Chicago on the south side where I came from was easy, a lot of fun, I guess is what I would say. I guess I did well in school. My mother pushed me very hard to move ahead, and I I was very young. I was 16 when I started college, and actually I was 20 still when I got my master's degree. 16? God. Yeah, it was a mistake, I think. I was very short to begin with, let alone being about two years younger than most everybody else. But you thought you were tougher than everybody else, too, didn't you? Well, I, I, I always was in fights, I guess, especially early on. Later, I calmed down. But, uh, yeah, and, and the fighting and the toughness was interesting, which maybe I'll talk about later. Cause I just want to tell one story here and then. My father ran away from home. At, he lived in the northern Mich- in the UP in Michigan, up near uh, Marquette, a little town called Champion. 
one of nine children when his father died at age 15. He ran away from home, joined a traveling circus, ended up in Chicago just about the time Prohibition was starting, and ended up joining a Jewish gang, which... Uh, this is your father? My father. Yeah, it was loosely affiliated with the Capone gang, and he would uh, run liquor, run whiskey from Canada to Chicago. Uh, it was one of his main jobs. Uh, other things, too. He was an expert safe cracker and uh, bank robber. Most of that I don't know about. I totally see where you get it from. Right, but you got your mechanical skill then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At a different time, different place, my father definitely would have been a mechanical engineer. He certainly had more registered patents than I ever did, but on good things like a collapsible fishing pole, a fishing pole that looks exactly like what a tote umbrella is now that folds up. Hmm. And being from the North Woods, everybody loved to fish. And his idea of the greatest thing for any businessman downtown was to have a collapsible fishing pole that he could put in his briefcase at lunchtime <laughs> go out and go fish in the lake and maybe not even come back to work in the afternoon which was my father's mo certainly in life <laughs> he was a very happy-go-lucky easygoing guy and, and a wonderful wonderful father and uh, at any rate i know very little about his real history other than i know he went straight a little bit before he met my mother, who was his third wife. and uh, Whoa, for real? Third wife? Yeah, yeah. So in the time period that he was married to my mother, we, we had a fun fun house. Uh, and he one of the things he did, which is a digression from substance maybe, he always took in waifs in the neighborhood who were having trouble, that were having trouble with their parents. Maybe they were abused, uh, had an alcoholic father and were beaten up and uh, all of a sudden we'd have some guy staying with us. Somebody I may have known not well, but somebody who lived down the street a block or two away or near. Jerry, <laughs> why don't, I'd like to go back to yeah. the beginning of your working career at Amico. Sure. Uh, I believe that uh, you you have a soft spot for polyester. Right. <laughs> I started out, uh, as I said, I got a master's degree at age 20, and I felt very young, and I was a lost soul, I think, even through college. I kind of grew up in college because I was awful young to, to go to college. But um, I went to work for Amico Oil Company in, a, in the research department, and I really quit after my master's degree in college because I just did not like research. It was so slow-moving. So I went to work, and they all started all the engineers in research, and I hated it. And I was going to quit. I signed up to go to medical school at the University of Chicago in the fall. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go out? We have a chemical plant in Joliet, Illinois, that we're trying to make run, and nobody can make it run. And it's about to shut down because it's losing a lot of money. It's hemorrhaging money as well as being a very dangerous place to work. And so what the heck, I went out there, and most of the people I worked with said I was crazy. Yeah, so I... Ended up there, and that's where, as the line I like to use is, I was born to be a chemical engineer. Every day, there were a myriad of problems. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. But because of the training I had had, more theoretical, but at Purdue, which was very much just problem solving and logic, we solved all kinds of problems. We had several big competitors, big oil companies like Mobil and Arco, various chemical companies, 
nobody could make it was the basic raw material to make polyesters for fibers and films and uh, plastic parts whatever and uh, all the other companies that were our competitors went out of business foreign companies like Imperial Chemical in England Monticatini in Italy. Why were they making polyester? What I don't understand. It's a byproduct of oil? Yeah, po- polyester, the raw material comes from gasoline, initially. Mm. You take something out of gasoline, it's a high-octane comp- component called xylene. And you got to do a lot of stuff with it to make it into something called terephthalic acid. But if you look at a soft drink bottle today, and you look at the bottom, there's a little right triangle at the bottom a recycle thing in it underneath that says PETE, which is polyethylene terephthalate. So polyester is a, a polymer of ethylene glycol is the polyethylene and terephthalic acid, which is the, the terephthalate part. And that's very, very difficult to make. You had to make it in what we called hospital purity. It was 99.95% pure because when you're spinning a fiber, and you're not, you don't have the links continuing, then the fiber will break in the spinners, and you maybe have a hundred head uh, threads coming out of the die head, and if one breaks and falls on the other ones, the whole thing goes down. So it, uh, it's very difficult to make in super high quality, and I just invented all kinds of things. In credit to my father, I probably would have had 50 patents more than his two fishing poles and a couple of valves and I then ended up in crude oil area for uh, about three or four years during the 70s during the period of gas lines and Department of Energy controlled the uh, entire supply of gasoline in this country they set the price of gasoline at every single station they set the allotment of gasoline at every single station and as all the experts in Washington you know, screw the thing up. And it just shows a centrally planned economy doesn't work. And I was real fervent on this because at one point, back in the earlier part of the interview, I started to say overseas, we sold technology to various companies that couldn't make their plants run as well as people who just wanted to get in the business. One of the plants we ended up building was in the former East Germany. This was in the early 70s, the same time Kissinger and Nixon went to China to split China off of uh, Russia, uh, they had the same program in the East where they tried to split the Eastern Bloc countries off from Russia. And that strategy, at least in the early 70s, didn't work. But by the 80s, it did work, and it was the Polish Pope, along with other things, that got Poland moved away, and then pretty soon the Eastern Bloc countries all kind of... Buying, Am- buying Amoco gas, yeah, basically. and the domino theory, so to speak, eventually the whole Soviet Union came down. So I'd like to go, I'd like to just briefly uh, talk about your political career. Oh, okay, yeah. Dealing with the government with crude oil... Uh, in the then when Reagan became president, it was decontrolled, and so I didn't deal with the people at Department of Energy or various congressmen in that area. I ended up in the environmental area mostly as a full-time lobbyist, and I ended up representing the oil industry, Amoco, and the oil industry on a lot of things. Uh, first big project was removing lead from gasoline, total re- removal. The EPA convinced us that uh, 
they needed to get lead out of the gasoline. The biggest problem was at the time of the transition, you could have leaded and unleaded at the same station, and unleaded was cheaper because it cost less to make. And uh, you couldn't put a leaded nozzle into an unleaded fill pipe because they had a restrictor. But people would punch the restrictor out, fill up with leaded gasoline because it was two cents a gallon cheaper, but it would poison the catalytic converter. And so we realized we had to do something. And so we had a significant negotiation. It started out just with this. I'm still a young engineer myself as the, the main technical person. And the head of refining, the vice president of refining for Exxon, and a person from Union Oil who had, in the Carter administration, been the secretary of transportation, I believe. And we negotiated with environmental groups and the EPA on how quickly we could get lead out of gasoline without causing gas lines. And in that process, uh, the main environmental group was the Environmental Defense Fund, and me uh, came up with what is now called cap and trade that they talk about with uh, car- carbon emissions. So is it a big deal, uh, leaded gasoline, as far as uh, messing up the environment? Yeah, it, two things. One, if you poisoned your catalytic converter, then the car would not have any emission reduction. The bulk of the emission reductions that came off of cars for a long time was the catalytic converter. And the secondary thing is it did get into the air and people did have a slightly higher what's called body burden of lead. But it, it, it's small in, uh, in, in numbers. But the biggest single thing was ruining the emission control in the cars. Right now, a car, a good car, emits less than 1% of the pollution that it did before 1974 when we first started adding catalytic converters. A lot of other things have been done to cars. A lot of other things have been done to gasoline, too, to cut down the emissions. But the emissions that cause smog, which are hydrocarbons and NOx and particulates, have all been almost totally eliminated from cars. And And that's why air quality is so good here. People don't realize when I started working on this is the next big thing was the reauthorization of the Clean Air Act in 1990 under Bush the first. The air quality limit was say 125 parts per billion of ozone is the smog measurement. Uh, and there were 300 areas in the country out of compliance with that. All but a few parts of California and New York, New Jersey got into compliance. The standard was reduced to 88 uh, under Bush the second. Under Obama, they reduced it down to 75 and went up to 300. And now we're down to a handful of places that don't meet a 75 requirement. So the air quality is just so dramatically improved. This is smog, uh, not to be confused with global warming, which the news media does frequently, but smog, uh, say in Chicago, every, every day is clear. A good measurement is I can look across from my apartment across the lake and see a power plant in Michigan City. When I had my first job downtown Chicago in the late 60s, and I had an office that could look across the lake, and one time I remember seeing this power plant, and I was so excited, and I didn't realize that maybe two or three times a year you can see the power plant. Now, any day that isn't cloudy or foggy, you can see the power plant. So I'd like to ask you regarding that, Jerry, uh, with all the talk now about uh, 
the clean air and the need for clean air mm -hmm. and the electric car. Yeah. Do you look at the electric car as something that would make a significant improvement in the environment or might actually set us back environmentally? Uh, the electric car will not make much difference in emissions. The big function of the electric car is what is the fuel to make the electricity? Electricity doesn't fall like mana from heaven. Uh, you have to make in a power plant. And if the power plant is fired by coal, well, then the emissions are higher. If the power plant is powered by uh, an electric, you know, a dam or a nuclear power plant, then the emissions are lower. And uh, if it's powered by the average of what we have now in this country, which is about 5% wind, 1% solar, 35% natural gas, about 30% coal, and I don't know, the rest would be dams and... Uh, a little nuclear and a little uh, dams. Right. So the upshot is now electric cars probably are equivalent per mile driven of about a 40 or 45 mile per gallon car on emissions. And I once did the math, and I went back and looked at how I did it, and I couldn't figure out what I had done before. This is one of the problems of getting older. Uh, but I've heard other people quote the same kind of number. So, Jerry, as you look at uh, the future, if you look 10 or 15 years down the road, do you think there's a tremendous potential for wind and solar or not? Uh, not a tremendous potential, but big, probably 20 to 30 percent uh would be wind and solar, and the rest would be conventional. And if you want to phase out fossil fuels, certainly coal will get phased out. And electric cars will grow as part of the fleet. And I'm sure Tesla will, now that they're in production, will start learning and getting better at it and, and probably even making money at, at a lower cost. They still don't make any of the $35,000 cars. Well, if I have a question for you. If... Why do you think wind and solar will reach that level? Um, just because there's a lot of subsidies for them. They're always more expensive, and you, ha and you always have to have a backup of, say, a gas-fired plant in case the wind does blow. A classic is Australia. A couple of years ago, the whole southwestern quadrant of Australia it's mostly desert, the main city is Perth, had a requirement that 50% of all their electric power had to come from wind and solar. And they had a big solar... 50%. 50%. And a big solar operation out in the desert, and they had windmills to beat hell and whatever, and they had a line that ran back uh, to Victoria, which is the southeast quadrant, for makeup if needed. But it, what happened was, you got to the first summer when it got hot, and the backup couldn't handle it, uh, especially because the wind stopped blowing in the, at night when there was no sunshine and no solar power coming. And the whole system went down, and it went down for two days in 100-degree weather. And they got it up. And a little while later, boom, it's down. And they, they had this horrible, horrible summer two years ago. I got to get, yeah, it's about two years ago now because their summer is now coming on. It's our winter. It was so bad that the uh, prime minister got canned, and, and uh, she was a liberal. They brought in the conservatives. In fact, they had some turnover there, too. Uh, they're even as silly as we are sometimes with government. But the uh, 
current prime minister campaigned with a lump of coal in his hand all the time. Australia has huge uh, reserves of coal, naturally. But um, wind and solar are good, but you can never rely on it for 100%. You always have to have backup of something that runs all the time. Are you worried about the ozone, global warming, the environment? Yeah, ozone is different, and we, you know, that's smog. And we've been able to clean it up. China has not cleaned it up. That's why they wear masks, whatever. Their carbon dioxide level is about 410 parts per million. Chicago here, the carbon dioxide is 410 parts per million, the same thing. The ozone and smog are different, and, and we've solved it, and they can solve it too if they get about it at, at a reasonable cost. You, you always have a cost-benefit you have to look at. But as far as global warming, I'm not the least bit concerned because... Uh, I look back in history, I've studied this a lot, uh, the last 100,000 years, well, the last 10,000 years, in fact, I'll go back to the last 1,000 years, in the year 1,000, which is just 1,000 years ago, the Vikings lived in Greenland, and now as ice is melting, they're finding relics of their farmhouses and their villages, because it was warmer then than it is today. And if you go back 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, it was much warmer than it is. Well, much warmer is too strong. Maybe three, four degrees warmer than it is today. And you don't think that uh, the climate change is caused by humans? No, no. The climate, everybody knows, that's a scientist, that the source of all the heat on Earth comes from the sun. A smidgen comes from volcanoes or whatever, but that's tiny. And that's where everything comes from. The CO2 that's in the atmosphere and the greenhouse effect, and I'll go back a step. Everybody who's a scientist knows if there was no sun, the temperature on Earth would be 460 degrees below zero, which is absolute zero. The sun warms us from minus 460 up to about zero degrees Fahrenheit. From the greenhouse effect of our entire atmosphere of which CO2 is 0.04%. The other 99.96% is something else. But uh, the bulk of the greenhouse warming is caused by water vapor, which is the natural humidity in the air. And that's very hard for the computers to model because the water vapor has two effects. The first effect is to trap heat in infrared heat that Infrared doesn't come in so much, but it's created when it bounces off the earth and goes back out. And like any greenhouse, you trap that infrared and it heats the, the air. And most of that heating comes from water vapor. Not much comes from oxygen and nitrogen, which are the main components of the atmosphere. A tiny bit comes from CO2. And the problem with water vapor, though, is that as it gets up in the air... It becomes clouds, and the clouds reflect the sunlight coming in. So you end up with, does more water help or hurt? Because uh, if you have clouds, everyone knows it's in summertime, it's warmer on a, or cooler on a sunny day. Wintertime, when I get the real cold nights in winter, it's those clear cold nights in, uh, in January or whatever, and the next day a front comes through with clouds, and it warms up 15 degrees. And that's the greenhouse effect of water vapor. It, it's, uh, it's impressive. <laughs> so, the long and short of it is 
CO2 contributes a very small amount of the warming that we're seeing. The warming we're seeing is well within the natural range of the last 10,000 years, 100,000 years, whatever time period you want to go back. And it, most recently, it's been warming since 17, 1800, since the end of what was called the Little Ice Age. Well, why is it that NASA and 95% of scientists say that this warming is, is man-made? Uh, Let me just challenge the simple one first, the 95%. That, to the best of my knowledge, and I haven't looked at it for a while, was a study done by a graduate student at the University of Illinois whose instructor said, find out how many scientists think, uh, climate scientists think that uh, uh, man-made CO2 is causing global warming. And she sent out, like... uh, 10,000 requests to people that they dug up as deemed climate scientists. Uh, They got back about 3,000 responses, of which they eliminated all but 79. Now, where that comes from, God knows. Uh, But of the 79, 77 said, yes, man-made sources are causing global warming. So 77 out of 79 is 97%. This, This whole thing is based on one study, you're saying? That was the main study. That got picked up and people kept quoting it. Since then, all kinds of people have done studies, but I've never seen something by, say, a Gallup poll or you know some nationally recognized pollster that's got a number. I would say 60 to 80% of most scientists believe that man is causing a significant amount of warming, but that doesn't mean it's 97%. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 60 to and 80. Okay. a significant minority uh, say there's other reasons, mainly natural reasons. NASA reports lots of things, and the NASA data is good. I, I rely on a lot of NASA data, especially the satellite temperature data, but it um, they, they just get out a lot of reports, and I have a feeling there's a huge confirmation bias built in, which means that a lot of the scientists want to show that there's a man-made problem, and that's why you need to do more research. And that's just natural. My very first project in research was a simple thing when I was a young kid, and I solved the problem. And I said, this, this is my recommendation. That's what we ought to do. My boss said, no, that's not right. You say, this may be the problem, and my recommendation is we get more money to do more research. <laughs> so you really think, it sounds like you think it's kind of a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's not a sinister conspiracy, except in a couple of places. But <laughs> it, it's, it, it's just a a confirmation bias. You want to publish something that's meaningful that'll get published, and if you say that there's a significant problem, you'll get published. And I, I think people cherry pick their data. There's so much stuff out there, you know. And if you look at the UN, the uh, IPCC report, and I participated way back in the early 90s in that. And uh, there are thousands of papers in the appendix of the report. Some group of scientists write a summary of what all the papers tell you. Some group of politicians write a summary of the summary, which is what the press sees, and the politicians for whatever their reasons are, want to say that there's a major problem. And so what's in the political 
executive summary, which is six or seven pages out of these hundreds of thousands of research pages that come out, is a political statement. Uh, and unfortunately, I'll say the last head had a problem with sexually abusing some of his staff and is now not doing it anymore. But nonetheless, not doing the sexual abuse as well as heading the committee. But it, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. And I, I know I've got children and grandchildren, and I know they'll do fine and life will go on. The, the sinister part, which is really very important, uh, Christine Figueros, who is the UN Commissioner for the Environment, in convening the Paris uh, meeting in 2015, had a press conference the day before, and I think I have what she had to say in her press conference. As Figaro said, this is from uh, New York Times, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years. In other words, free market uh, capitalism. And since the, uh, yeah, since, the industrial, since the Industrial Revolution, that's the last century, she went on to say, this is probably the most difficult task we have ever given ourselves. I recognize Figueros is from the Socialist Party of Costa Rica. And she went on to say in a different part where I couldn't find her quote, is that what we need is a worldwide socialist government controlled by the UN. So, yeah, she has an agenda. So that's what the Paris Accord is really about? Some of the people, yeah, and I think some of the politicians, uh, the real gloom and doom people in America, and there's the guy Bill McKibben, who's probably uh, the intellectual leader of the uh, global warming alarmist, uh, say that uh, you know economic growth is a thing of the past. It's one big habit that we finally must break. We cannot have economic growth. And the classic example, I don't know if he's referring to China, China's moved, uh, what, something like 500 million people out of poverty, out of subsistence farming to work in the cities. And if you look at their global warming footprint, it's enormous. Uh, a farmer that lived in a mud hut with no heating or air conditioning, and he walked on a dirt path to his little field that he farmed and fertilized with his own manure, uh, now goes to work in the city. And now he lives in a building made of glass and steel and concrete. And you, To make concrete is a huge CO2 emitter. Making glass, you got to melt sand to make glass. It's huge CO2. And how does he get to work? Now he doesn't work on a dirt path. He works on a concrete or asphalt road. Which, and the road, he drives in a bus or rides his motor scooter, all of which hugely increases carbon footprint. And that's the reason, you know, that China has this huge increase in CO2 in the last 50 years. It's industrialization also, but it's just moving people out of poverty into some better level. And I'm strongly in favor of moving people out of poverty. So I work with the homeless and the we transition a lot of people from homelessness to self-sufficiency, and it's, uh, in my mind, that's that's the crucial problem of our time is is poverty. Jerry, so you've in effect you've closed the loop here between the homeless shelter and working with the homeless and the 
uh, global warming zealots who don't believe in economic growth and a worldwide socialist environment. And you saw what socialism did in Eastern Europe. Exactly. No, yeah, that's a good uh, that, that's a good way to summarize it. <laughs> and that uh, I could talk for another hour with all kinds of examples, but uh, you know, it, one of the things to just a minor thing that nobody appreciates in the Paris Accord, we're supposed to put in a hundred billion dollars a year to of financial transfer to underdeveloped countries to help them move people out of poverty, but at the same time help them somehow take care of their carbon footprint and come from that. And, of course, nobody talks about that. Nobody put any money into the fund. I might comment on, on the... Yeah, this is really interesting because I don't know anything about it. All, all I know about it is that we alienated ourselves and... Well, when we pulled out, yeah, Australia's pulling out, too, because they had a bad experience. And Kyoto Treaty was similar as a worldwide treaty, but it wasn't as... It wasn't, didn't involve so many countries. It's a, it's a lesson in hypocrisy. Nobody intends to comply. If you look at, since 2015, and I find, found a summary of CO2 emissions, you can look it up on the internet, CO2 emissions by country since 2015, you'll find practically every country has gone up. We're one of the few that's gone down slightly, and that's because we're converting from coal to natural gas. But, uh, you know, China's gone up, India's gone up, all, all the, the bad guys. But, um, you know, they, they said what they wanted to say, and Obama either bought into it or didn't want to hear the truth. He accepted it. But China, in, his, in Xi Jinping's agreement with Obama, China said we will do no more than triple our CO2 emissions by 2025. Wow. <laughs> And, but he couched it in such a clever way. He said, we will reduce our CO2 intensity by 60%. Oh, wow, 60% reduction. Intensity means pounds of CO2 per dollar of GNP. And, of course, they were going to increase their GNP in that time period by their five-year plans by 2030, not 2025. They were going to increase their GNP by 360%. So to take 60% off of that, they're only going to increase their CO2 emissions by 300%. But you don't even worry about it that much because you feel like CO2 can be cleaned up. and no, It's not going to be cleaned up. It's just going to go in the atmosphere. And let me tell you why I don't worry about it. <clears throat> because the greenhouse effect, I've got to make it simple. CO2 is, is good. Water is even better because of the way the molecules are designed for capturing the uh, infrared radiation going out up to some level when you've covered uh, enough concentration in the atmosphere that the wavelength the, that the material captures is, is covered. For CO2, the end of their, the efficiency of CO2 capturing uh, heat is at about 550 parts per million. We're at 400 now. Another 30, 50 years we'll be at 500 and we won't warm anymore after that from the CO2. So it's it's not a big deal. CO2 several million years ago was 8,000 parts per million. And strangely enough, the world didn't come to an end. We didn't turn into a Venus. Even as recently as a couple of million years ago, we were still 2,000 parts per million. Carbon is neither created nor lost in on Earth, except for the little bit of radioactive decay. We have the same carbon on Earth today 
that we had when the Earth was formed four and a half billion years ago. And it was in solid form, whatever, and in the atmosphere, very heavily in the atmosphere. At some point in time, going back several hundred million years, plant life started to form. Plant life started eating into that carbon, because that's what plants grow. They live on carbon and give off carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. The level of CO2 came down. It's been coming down for the last several million years. I have a chart I could look up and tell you what it is. But the temperature during that period was up and down and all around. We had ice ages. At the time that the CO2 level was going up, because it went up and down, we'd have ice ages. But uh, we also have warming periods when CO2 was coming down. There's no correlation except for very recently, which is very funny and remind me, because when I get done with this, I'll tell you that. What what basically happened was all the carbon that was in the atmosphere was absorbed by plants and animals, and they were buried. They turned into coal and oil and gas, and now we're burning it. We're putting it back out in the atmosphere. And what we're seeing is a greening of America, certainly, and a lot of the rest of the world. There are more trees in America today, I think, than when Columbus landed. It's interesting. And so... That carbon that had been in the air is now going back into the trees and into the ground, and it cycle at different levels. But we're well within ranges we've been in the history of the Earth, and it, it's not uh, it's not a major crisis. That's, if I was worried, I would uh, get more active in this whole thing, and, and it's just disinformation. Now, there's one other thing I was going to say about. Oh, the correlation. If you read Al Gore's book, uh, Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore has a lot of data in his book. I've read his book, studied it, I saw his movie, but his book shows that over the last 300,000 years, I think he has, temperature and, and carbon levels going up and down, kind of in synchronization, and it looks like, man, there is a correlation, but when you look at it real carefully, there is. The earth warms, and about six, seven hundred years later, the CO2 comes up. So it's not that the CO2 causes warming, it's that warming causes CO2. And most people believe hmm. it's because there's a lot of CO2 dissolved in the oceans. And when the oceans get a little warmer, they give off the CO2 and it comes into the air. Interesting. You know, and, 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 and he doesn't talk about that anymore because a lot of people point that out to Gore after he published his book. I suspect he had ghostwriters writing the book and he didn't realize what he had done. And so it's kind of under undercover. Under we don't talk about it so much. But I mean, the stuff is just what's going on is a travesty of science, and and it's really silly. And and the cost is enormous. This is something nobody talks about. I was on a commission that Gore chaired. This is toward the end of my career in Washington. And I represented the oil industry, or Amico represented the oil industry. I was the one who sat at the table, and, and it was about. 25 groups, mostly environmental groups, and it was ahead of the time that Gore went to Japan to sign the Kyoto Treaty in uh, December 97. In any event, the U.S. sent, we studied what it would take for the transportation sector to meet the Kyoto Treaty and what the cost would be. And we had a lot of environmental groups uh, involved, all the standard ones like Sierra Club, NRDC, even had here in Chicago the Center for Neighborhood Technology, which was five people. Uh, they had one vote. Amoco and the whole oil industry had one vote. Gore kind of rigged the uh, <laughs> scales. But at any rate, we ended up 
with a cost. And the economics were done by the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House. So it was Gore's people, and they came out with a cost of somewhere over $300 billion a year. Yeah, $300 billion a year for the transportation sector to meet the Kyoto Treaty, which was not even enough to make much of a dent in the temperature rise, but that was what the treaty required. And the transportation sector was one-third of the total CO2 emitters of the whole U.S. The other two-thirds were industry and heating and air conditioning and building uh, temperature control. Jerry, thank you very much. You've uncovered a lot of very inconvenient truths today. Yeah, let me just finish this, though, Lloyd. So for the whole U.S. industry, it cost a trillion dollars a year when our economy was $10 trillion. That's 10% of uh, our GDP. You couldn't afford it. And if I were a poor guy living in the south suburbs working up in uh, at O'Hare and my gasoline bill goes up by two, $3,000 a year and I'm making 20000 that's terrible. It's it just no cost benefit. That's a rather inconvenient truth for them. Yeah. Jerry, thank you so much. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It boosts our egos, and of course, your ears are the reason we do this. But it would be great if you could subscribe and leave a review, as it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you soon.